Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets podcast. I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Mark Robinson. Hello there, John. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. And James Norrington for the first time. How are you doing, James? I'm very well, John. Thank you. Yeah, good. Right, so this week's cover feature is the AIM 100. We're going we're gonna to touch on that shortly. It's too big to discuss uh, in any detail on this podcast today. Let's talk, though, to start with about what's been going on this week. And, and obviously, the big news on the seven days section is the, the new figures from China. What do you think of those, Mark? Well, um, the only surprising thing about the figures coming through from China that anyone would actually be surprised about it. Um, we've had this going as a trend for some time now. The PMI data has been uh, progressively working its way down since midway through last year. PMI uh, being the Posting well, Managers Index. So this it, is- exactly. It's it's a sort of a rough guide to exactly what's going on uh, in the industrial sector. This is manufacturing China. PMIs then? Yeah, that's it. That's right. That's yep. right. But even aside from that, um, uh, housing starts, construction work is down in, in China. I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible shock to the market, but it's, it's something we have to all uh, take on board. I mean, uh, particularly, as you know, I cover uh, the commodity sectors in large, and that sort of feeds right into it. Mm, so I noticed on, on the same page, we've got a, a chart of continuing fall in the iron oil price. And I guess that, that has something to do with the slowing uh, economic growth. Well, yeah, China. I mean, Goldman Sachs come out with a note today saying that uh, by the midway through uh, next year, they wouldn't uh, be surprised to see uh, prices around about $40 a tonne, coming down from uh, about $113 uh, at the beginning of uh, last year. So again, it's a, it's a key in indicator of um, economic growth. But, you know, all, all, all things considered, th- th- this again isn't such a great shock. It was a great shock a couple of years ago when we, uh, I mean, we've... Um as some of you uh, may know, we, we've run a number of seminars for um, com- the commodity sector where we've had companies, usually from the A market, who've actually come along to present. And, and I actually did a presentation which I think most people thought was a rather gloomy way to start these things, talking about iron ore. And I think at that point, the price was around $90 a tonne. And, and uh, there, there were lots of projections that you know this was the new normal, but it's got much worse than well, that. I think right. everyone thought it was far too gloomy at the time. Well, I say a, a, lot, a lot of investment decisions were, were predicated on, on an oil price, um, an iron ore price around about 60 to $70 a, a tonne, a long-term projection. And it may well be that it will be some way a, a drift of that. We, we don't know yet. Uh, there's various factors that feed into this over the long run, not least of which is the declining ore grades uh, throughout the major miners, which uh, will tend to support prices uh, over the long term. But it seems at the moment that decreased demand is is the main um, is the main point which is driving prices down rather than the uh, supply side itself. So it's something that we'll be keeping an eye on. Again, as I've pointed out in the past, it's very difficult to uh, ascertain accurate inventory levels from China. So we we will just be monitoring this and and, and hoping that uh, they're not quite as buoyant as they, they seem to be at the moment. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, talking about slowing growth, um, on the same page, uh, the IMF global growth forecasts are unchanged, but they're warning that the future could look a, a bit tougher. Well, the, the interesting point there is, does anyone take anything the IMF says seriously? I mean, given their, their sort of record on forecasting in the past. Yeah, well, forecasts, eh? Forecasts. It's a difficult game to be in. Um, does anyone take anything the IMF says seriously? Maybe not. Does anything that the uh, ECB says get taken seriously? Certainly got taken seriously this week by some young, activists. That's right, a young German <laughs> activist, a young woman who... Uh, 
We hit the IC of... Uh, we admire greatly for her pluck. Have you bought a T-shirt yet? I haven't bought the T-shirt, but uh, I'm looking around on the internet as we speak. Yeah. So, uh, one, a wonderful uh, story. Um, Mario Draghi's face was... Uh, was was a sight so, indeed <laughs> it's not every day that uh, a 20 something german activist jumps on your desk and throws confetti over you precisely um, but one, one can only imagine what his face was like at his wedding because uh, assuming he's married i don't, I don't know but, uh, well it uh, made a number of uh, middle-aged journalists at the ic sort of reasonably happy for five minutes anyway indeed indeed another big story that we to- talked about last week was this enormous well last week it was enormous this week it's not quite so big Oil discovery in Sussex. It's dwindling as we speak. Well, perhaps it is, perhaps, perhaps it isn't. The, the, the main thing about uh, last week's revelations from UK oil and gas investments um, was that it made it made the RNS in the first place. I was, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a... Uh, uh, from the financial PR industry, and uh, and he mentioned that uh, based on the the new tech um, reservoir analysis that was uh, came out originally, there is no way that uh, the company should have come to the market with this information as it was in initially on the RNS. As far as I understand, anyway, the the petrophysical uh, anal- analysis uh, was petrophysical. Based- Petrophysical analysis. Petrophysical analysis. Petrophysical analysis. That's okay, it. Okay, well, it's a but, new word for me today. But from New Tech, which is a Houston-based firm, a very experienced firm. Basically, it's an extrapolation over the 55 square miles site of Horse Hill, dead in the wield. And and while they are justified justified in being excited about the the potential of of this find, uh, the early figures that were quoted to the press. Um, I don't know if misleading is the right word, but it amounts to possible hyperbole. Okay, so have uh, UK Oil and Gas uh, retracted their RNS? Well, they've uh, not necessarily retracted it, but they've just they've qualified it and saying that there's no way that uh, the the initial sort of findings could be considered as either contingent or prospective resources or reserves. Uh, so, okay, that that is a retraction in a sense, but uh, they weren't explicit in in saying that the, these were sort of uh, Proved or, or contingent resources to begin with, which is fair enough, and, and you you would be foolish to have re- read into it initially. Well, I mean, we expressed some scepticism at the scale of this last week when well, we spoke it, on the well, podcast. Even uh, yeah, I'm, I'm look the analysis from New Tech as well. We, we don't know for sure if this is a, con- a completely conventional or unconventional resource. Uh, and the point that's being made is that you can't s- formulate these results for conventional resources in the same they way that you would run conventional resources because you're looking at rock strata for the most part in the latter whereas you're looking for um, geological gaps in the former uh, and while they're looking at places like the Bakken and saying that's analogous to certain uh, geological formations there um, you can't really extrapolate the figures if this is a conventional find which it seems to be or at least they're saying it is at this time so they, they've they've rode back on, on all this, and, and justifiably so. It, it still may be a significant find. We just don't know, and it's far too early to say at this, at this stage. Um, I but I mean, let's, just, let's just say that, that it turns out to be not quite what they'd originally suggested I mean, the, it might be. I mean, this, isn't, this, this is the kind of thing, reading across to the AIM feature that we've written this week, this is the kind of thing that gives AIM a bad name. Well, yes. Yes, that's right. I, I, the, the, the whole point about AIM is to encourage companies like this one. However, but, but there also should be some boundaries within which they operate in terms of the way they release news to the market. And, it, and if they've actually gone out there and put something out there, which is, 
either impossible to back up with uh, the evidence that they have uh, or is simply untrue. Well, this... Then investors, you know, people who have piled into this are going to lose money. Uh, and, and this is what people criticise AIM for. Well, it's quite right. I, I didn't I didn't look at the volumes behind last week's share rise. I mean, the shares are up by 200% at one stage and they're up by nearly 300% over the last 12 months. But UK Oil and Gas Investments, and they own about 20-odd percent uh, of, of this fund as well, is controlled by David Lenegas, who's... Um, you know, a serial sort of uh, AIM entrepreneur, and yeah, okay, this is this is why AIM justifiably gets uh, criticism from time to time. But UK Oil and Gas should have been better advised by their uh, PR consultants, for one thing. And really, it's not the first story we've had. Well, in terms of scale, it's, it's unique. But we've had sort of companies being talked up in the past. But there, but there are disclosure rules. I mean, you know, and yes, of course, the company's PR representative should be advising it appropriately. But but also there are simply rules that, that need to be abided by. The companies should know these. Yeah, looking looking at the original press release, I'm not sure that they would contravened anything from a, a, a legal or a regulatory uh, perspective. But the tone, the the tone was was far too um, bullish, uh, I guess. I mean, when you when you look at it, the, the figure, or one of the figures that were quoted, is that this is sort of uh, could contain a hundred billion barrels uh, of oil. I mean, that would put uh, the wheel basin on a par with Kuwait. I'm sure most of our readers would have looked at this and just thought, "Oh, hold on a minute." I, I'll guarantee that most of our readers did that. But, um, but there are people out there who wouldn't have, who would have taken it at face value. They must, here we are. They must have done. But I mean, I, I haven't heard, heard a tip from their mate. Oh, God, well, they've, they've discovered uh, you know, 100 billion barrels of oil in, in Sussex. Well, and, 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 the, into this one. and the press and the BBC, all these people, you know, the, 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 the broadsheets and the BBC who should know better, they all jumped on the back of this as well. So, it, you know, it, it's a great story. I mean, I'm sure most of us would like it to be true in a sense. But then again, even if it was, even if in the wildest dreams 100 billion barrels were somehow extractable this is down in southern england can, can you imagine can you imagine the cost involved in the planning process or getting through the planning process for this the obstacles put up by uh, middle england and, and and this this is the main point how much of this even if it was there physically would be economically viable from an extraction point of view. Well, indeed, and that's a very good point. So let, let's use that point as a neat segue into uh, the, the AIM 100. Yeah. Um, this week, um, so what we, do, what we do every year is we look at the, the top companies on AIM, and they account for around 50% of the value of all companies on, on the, the junior market. Um, and we, we basically talk through current, current trading prospects and, and give our views. And one of those companies uh, which you wrote about uh, in, in the, the first 50 that we covered this week is uh, Sirius Minerals. Yeah, there is an interesting parallel because Sirius Minerals, by all accounts, has something which is a, a, a genuine resource of a, of a commodity. In this case, potash, uh, which is very valuable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, but we're not convinced that it's ever going to come to any to fruition. Well, well, exactly. I mean, uh, Matthew and Alan and, and I had a well, a sort of a, quite a controversial piece where we, we were sort of uh, yin and yang, saying on the one side, this is the, this is the sort of positives for the. The company and on the other side this is what can hold it back there is a genuine asset there and a genuine long-term asset and had benefits for the local economy serious in a sense had done everything right but it just ran in, into planning uh, regulatory problems which they're still at and 
I guess a large part of that is because this resource is in the middle of an area of outstanding natural beauty. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> I think it's park, a, the North Yorkshire National Park. I've, I've visited the company a couple of times, and they actually they, they took this into consideration to a large degree. Mm. It wasn't they didn't go in sort of blindfold on this. And um, and you look at the plans, and you think they've taken everything into consideration in terms of uh, the environmental uh, impact. But they've still been stalled uh, on on that regulatory basis, and and this costs money over time. You know they're, they're not making a bean, and as such, I mean the, the exit strategy for this company now, and and they might take issue with this, would be once well, assuming that both approvals processes go through, which would be the same time a little bit later on this year, um, it would be bought up because the asset they have got, the resource they have got, is real and it's valuable. But getting it out of the ground and getting it to a place where it's useful is really expensive. Well, it's going to take money. It's going to take. Oh, I don't know. I was. I was just thinking of BHP Billiton because they they wanted to build up their um, uh, that part of their business. They made a, an unsuccessful bid for uh, Potash Corp. I was I was going to struggle with the word Saskatchewan then, but uh, well done. You got it. You got that. I got it there in the end, and uh, I, I think that failed because of uh, regulatory issues mm. eventually. But they were looking to build that side of the business, and you would think someone like Glencore would be would be interested too. I mean, there's any number of people that might be Yarra. There's there's another potential bidder there. I mean, it is a valuable resource, but uh, it's you know the Sirius won't be able to do it themselves. That's for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, sticking on the subject of the AIM 100 um, and and the companies you've got. I mean, so the, the AIM the AIM index, the AIM market has had a reputation as being a bit of a speculator's paradise, particularly for uh, those interested in the oil and gas sector. Um, but yeah. we know that over the last few years, those companies have have had a terrible, terrible, terrible time. Yeah, not and, just and them. you know, and that's really. I mean, I I ran some numbers, um, and you know, uh, the oil and gas segment of AIM. The basic materials, most of which is mining and industrial metals, has had a torrid time. And they've yep. really dragged down the performance of the index as a yep. whole after what was, you know, a really runaway performance for those kind of companies. Um, most of the companies on AIM, I would guess, are in the exploration side of things rather than production. Yeah. Um, and uh, the falling oil price has really, in some cases, ren- rendered the economic case in many, many of these instances unviable. I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we, we're at this point now in this week's sector focus. We, you know, we, we're zeroing on and the um, on, on the deal for, for BG Group, but this brings in the question of uh, are, are sort of the oil majors ready to strike in order to sort of replenish their reserves? And, and the way they can do this um, relatively cheaply is by going after companies on AIM, for instance, that are either in production or moving towards um, uh, new production. Uh, There's any number of um, examples that we give. Um, So number 100, Ithaca, which we like. We we mentioned Ithaca. I think we mentioned Enquest as well. Enquest not being not one of the AIM 100. But you mentioned in the sector focus. I do mention the sector focus. You'll have to excuse my ignorance on uh, your own on Lon- London's, <laughs> on my own sectors and London's junior market there. Um, yeah, no, I think I think the point is a good one. That you know, producing assets, there's something valuable there still. The explorers are going to have a tougher time. And actually, you know, when I look through this list, you know, it's f- there are far fewer um, oil and gas and mining companies than there were when we did this this exercise a year ago. Yeah, and they've all slipped down the ranks quite quite substantially. And I guess the ones that have slipped down the ranks more have been the ones that don't have any real producing assets, real proof that they are going to deliver 
Well, that, that's, anything. Well, that's right, and and the assets they have got have, have been marked down because of the oil price. Uh, most of them had impairments in this last year. I mean, Ithaca um, uh, provides a case in point, and uh, this great stellar field that they that's been delayed for them bringing in into production it will totally transform them as a company in terms of uh, their productive capability. This is a good company, but uh, you wouldn't guess so looking at the share price. I mean, it's a shame, really, because um, we'd have had a lot of readers that have backed the company at this stage, and who's to say if they don't hold on to the shares that they will actually get a decent return on this? But we're in a difficult place at the moment. Mm. I mean, you know, my, my observation looking looking at this year's uh, A100 is that that it's much more balanced than it than it has been at times in the past. You know, there's a much broader spread of of companies and sectors than there really ever has been before. Yeah, there's been in terms of the value, the overall the overall proportion of value. Yeah, definitely. There's there's been a bit of a, a Darwinian logic at play here, and uh, you even look at the. Um, uh, the admission statistics on AIM in the early part of this year, they've dropped away substantially. And there's, all, of course, there's many reasons for this, not least of which is that we're slightly this side of a, a general election. And uh, th- this will obviously engender a lot of instability in markets, already has done. Uh, we may see a pickup in, in listings up, uh, following the election, but there's been an increase in the number of delistings as well. And these, these are companies that, are, that just financially... Uh, can't cope with a with a public listing any longer. I mean, they, they may they may be able to raise raise money um, uh, privately, but um, we're going to see a little bit more of this by the end of the year. It's certainly a better market. I mean, it was a better market last year, um, but there's more quality at the end of this year as well. But um, I mean, one one thing also, I've also I mean that has been kind of noteworthy this year is that. A number of own companies have, have come under fire from uh, so, so-called short-selling attacks. Um, so, you know, on the, on, in the first 50, we've got Globo that was among them. Uh, yeah. Tungsten, which has been a recent um, uh, victim of that. And, I, and I, you know, my, my observation would be, I and mean, obviously we've had Quindell, which is uh, still in the top top 50. And uh, and we have the spectre of the activist investor as well. Well, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, my, my view would be that uh, AIM sometimes makes easy pickings uh, where there is the slightest scent that something is not right yeah then then it's you know it makes it easy for short sellers to go after after these companies and you know going back to uk oil and gas that does little as far as i'm concerned to enhance the reputation of this market the returns on aim have been stellar in the past and so conversely when 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 uh, market sentiment turns against it mm. um, i just think that you indulge in hyperbole it comes back to bite you well you're it right it does turn out to be that <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely right. But it also it also knocks on to some other companies who are who are doing good things. Anyway, let's um let's move on from AIM, um because we have a hundred companies there, fifty companies in this week's issue. Enquest not being one of them. Not Enquest not being one of them. And you know we've got we've got another feature this week, which is why I've got James here. So uh, James, we're going to talk about your feature this week, which is one of a number that you've done for us on this this subject. You're you're taking on our market tactics uh, yeah, coverage right, now. So t- tell us about what you've what you've written this week. I've been taking a look at um, Investors Chronicles' 10-asset portfolio, which was um, started by my predecessor in the role. I mean, the, the basic, Dominic, Dominic Picarda. Dominic Picarda. The basic premise is looking to get tactical asset allocation to um, several major asset classes and, and get better returns um, as a result. So this, so this is the theory that, you know, let's forget about it, stop picking mm. on AIM. You know, your returns over time come from exposure to a, to a balanced mix of asset classes. That's exactly uh, it. And, and as one of them performs well in a certain point in the cycle, another will, will not necessarily perform so well. But that will that will revert uh, another later point. And o- over time, you will benefit uh, in aggregate. 
Yeah, the the idea, I mean, I, I tend to look at it more as um, an exposure strategy rather than diversification of risk, you know, strictly because uh, I, I think, you know, now in a post-QE world, um, I think valuation... Post-QE? This is big QE in Europe. Well, but, uh, uh, yeah. No. Post-QE. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, Mario, since, Mario Draghi will since, testify to. <laughs> since, <laughs> the, uh, since, since uh, the the QE first, I think it's now... It's, very much with us and uh, still in Japan and, uh, mm, and in mm. Europe um, I think valuations are all over the place um, and I think an unwind in in, in the bond markets um, would have knock-on effects uh, for um, for a number of other assets so I'm, I'm I make this point in the feature you know, there's there's a certain level of caution needs to be taken with with looking at the 10 asset portfolio um, as a diversifier of risk yes so we're talking about you getting exposure to I think you've got the FTSE 100 here so the major major global yeah. indices and then you've got exposures to other asset classes. Yes, exactly. So, so physical gold, um, property, um, all commodity indices, uh, and you know, sort of so index-linked um, uh, UK government securities, um, um, as well as sort of the IBOX overall basket for gilts, which reflects price and yield as well. And and obviously we've got a ten percent allocation to cash in there as well. And I guess the point is, you know, you can't second guess, you know, at which point the cycle for any of these uh, under assets is likely to turn. I think the idea is you buy several markets rather than worrying about the systematic risk of, of several investments um, and reduce your costs by not dipping in and out. So time in the market. Um, rather than trying to time the market, yeah, um, and by having that broad exposure to a, to a number of different markets and asset classes, um, that over time, you know, it, it should bear out that your returns will be better. And, and sorry, do we have evidence of that? Have we have we back tested this and found well, that that, we, it, that it works? Um, looking at this, because I. I, I Obviously, I want this to be investable. Um, so we've looked at um, indices that are tracked by uh, exchange-traded products that um, UK investors can access. Yeah, I mean, that, that so, I must admit, I really like. I like the fact mm. that we've got a, a kind of simple mechanical strategy here, but the one that you can actually play because the products are there to let you do it. I think that's, I mean, that's really important because, you know, the- theoretical investment stories are great, but actually being able to do them, I think... Yeah, is is a step forward. Yeah, I mean, and the rub is, John, is is actually that the indices um, that, that these products track, um, they don't go back so far. So uh, I can't go back and back test, you know, a hundred years of data, um, which again is why you know this needs to be taken with a you know a certain element of caution. It's it's um, it's an exposure strategy. It's not a wealth diversification strategy. It's own right. You you wouldn't be investing in this if you didn't own your own property and have a bit of cash aside as well um, so I think that point's important but actually so far since 2002 which does take in a pretty significant um, some, uh, some, ma- stress, some major, major market events have happened yeah, in that time so, so. so it's not exactly been a quiet period you know the, the, the total returns of the indices um, that we've tracked it's been 197% so that's that's non anti shabby but, but take, by definition this is, a, this is a passive strategy it is yeah, yeah it's mm. passive because I guess when you, the, the point on the commodities before, uh, the idea over the long term is that uh, even though there's weakness in oil and gas markets, uh, iron ore, copper, uh, the normal supply demand uh, would be re- rebalance over time. Yeah, well, that's the point. And, yeah. and I guess that you know, if you're trying to time the market, you run the risk of buying at the top and selling yeah. at the bottom. Whereas time in the market means that you have exposure throughout the cycle and the long run exposure and we talked about this last week in terms of, yeah. for example, uh, energy demand yeah. is, is up. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, and we'll keep on rising, but there's going to be erratic, there's going to be volatility along volatility the way. Volatility along the way. Well, I mean, one thing you are doing in this week's um, feature, because you've, you've updated this uh, twice already? This is the second I've time I've done it the second time. The first time um, I 
did only look at the just the, the core assets without doing a rebalancing methodology. Right, but this, um, is, this is the point. And, yeah. and you, so you also um, reintroduced our high yield system uh, yes. last summer, I think that yes. was. And you know, and again, what what I like again about these mechanical strategies is that they can be refined as well. So I think you know, in this case, you've actually started to refine the 10 asset portfolio and you're you actually testing it and asking questions of it and I think the last one you did was suggesting whether perhaps you don't need 10 assets at all you can do this with just two well I, I think um, if, if you were if you were to try and um, you know just to be a diversified reduce your risk then then the point was is that actually and well I think that both you know FTSE 100 shares and uh, bonds are sort of getting into bubble territory now um, so maybe that would be a, a, a less prudent way to invest but uh, the, the trading methodology the rebalancing actually um, it mitigates problem with um, you know the, the, the correlation between some of the other asset classes okay. that were in the 10 asset initially which because um, everything went down um, in 2007 2009 and some of the assets that you become overweight in in the lead up if you'd invested from 2002 um, this was a period when it wasn't easy to access this with exchange-traded funds. So the way that a private investor would have accessed this would have been by buying everything and probably leaving it, which is why I initially took that approach of, of a buy-it-and-leave-it approach to this. Well, which suggests that even with passive strategies, you, you, you can't be completely passive. You have to come back to them. You have to revisit what you're doing. You, know, you, you leave a passive strategy, it might you know, run wild like weeds in the garden. You know, the, the wrong things might grow. Exactly. Well, I think it's it's very relevant as well because you, if you look at a lot of the large uh, municipal state uh, uh, pension funds that are being run at the moment, there's there's an ongoing argument here uh, about the efficacy of uh, passive versus active portfolios, and it's something that uh, no doubt Maura O'Neill will be uh, talking about at some point in uh, their parallel podcast. I mean, just more generally, I think I think the whole idea of passive is a good one, but I think perhaps people misinterpret. Because of because of the word that's used, passive, that mm. it's something you don't have to do anything. Now, you know, if you could stick a thousand pound in a passive portfolio and never do anything and end up a millionaire, well, yeah, mm. we'd all be millionaires, surely. So, yeah, I think I think just demonstrates that you still have to work at making passive strategies work. They're not quite as passive as as the as the phrase passive investing would suggest. Well, I think, you know, with a, a methodology like this, from the indices, it goes back to 2002. Um, with the actual products to make it investable, some of them only go back to 2011. Mm, some of the products mm. themselves have not been through a period of stress. That's true. So, That's true. I guess the point where passive, the word passive does come into play is with actually the products themselves, because you couldn't actively go out and replicate the performance of the, you know, IBOX bond index or uh, or even, even actually get uh, exposure to physical gold in a portfolio. So, you know, I think that the the passive side of it is actually tracking these these wider indices through through products like ETFs. Um, so yeah, um, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Still quite complicated. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll get you back in another twenty years' time. See how it went. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, thanks, James. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Mark, for uh, your views on oil this week. Plenty in the magazine, apart from the A100, which is uh, obviously the uh, the focus. Sixteen pages of, of coverage, and we'll have another sixteen pages uh, next week. Plenty more beyond that. You'll hear all about the personal finance and funds side of things uh, in the podcast. Uh, we've got a few few results this week. A few uh, few AIM companies are reporting. A stock screen looking at uh, income, uh, dividend paying shares, four pound fifty. All good news agents. And thank you very much. And see you again next week. Bye bye.